Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's and chapter 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. And apart from the very last verse, all of this is spoken by the beloved, by the Solomon character, the groom, if you will. So Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which, hung, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Senia and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is wine than your love, and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant, hemmer, fragrant henna with spikenard. Spikenard and saffron. Calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all the chief spices. A fountain of waters, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, as we have been looking at this Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, we've noticed that it is, of course, in essence, a series of connected love poems. There is no narrative some people have tried to find a narrative, but really it's a series of tableau, if you will, a series of exchanges or speeches in poetry. And it is about married love, and it's particularly about the fact that the, the bride and the groom are going to come together. It's all, of course, very much rooted in ancient Middle Eastern marriage customs where you would have the betrothal and then you could have up to a year between the betrothal and the wedding. Of course, that's very much the situation that you have with Joseph and Mary in the Gospels. Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And this was more than an engagement. It was basically the first half of the wedding, the first half of the marriage and there would then be the ceremony, and of course that's what's pictured in our Lord's parable of the ten virgins, 
where the, the groom would come to the bride's house and take her then back to his house and then that would be the final stage of the wedding. And so we are here in this text between the two. And here the beloved speaks. We've noted that because married love is a picture, the love of the husband and wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, so this poem, which is an ideal of marital love, gives us a picture of that relationship between Christ and his church. The larger part of the book is spoken by the bride, but this chapter is almost entirely spoken by the groom. And he is speaking very largely in praise of his beloved. He starts off with this great section where he speaks of her beauty. Behold, you were fair, my love. Behold, you were fair. And he goes through the various parts of her body. He begins with her eyes. The picture is that she is veiled. Now, this is not a veil like a modern Muslim that covers the hair completely. This rather would be a bit more like the traditional bridal veil in the West. It's a gauzy piece of fabric that is semi-transparent. So he can see through the veil. That's why he can speak about her hair, her mouth, her temples. Because he can see those through the veil. But the first thing he sees through the veil, of course, are her eyes. Her eyes glittering in the light. And he's thinking about her. And all he can do is speak of how beautiful she is. But behind this physical beauty, there is something else. There is a beautiful person, a beautiful personality. It's not enough to simply dwell upon the physical. Too often, of course, people have gone into simply the physical. They think simply of the physical, but of course... Physical beauty is not enough. There must be a beautiful person. And we see in scripture, for example, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She was certainly a beautiful person physically. There were two kings who fell madly in love with her, even though she was married to somebody else. In both cases, because Abraham was scared, rather than Abraham saying, no, I'm sorry, she's my wife. He put her in a very difficult position that only God could rescue her from because he was not really prepared himself to stand up for her. And yet this beauty of the ancient women of scripture is spoken of by the apostle Peter in a, as a sign of something deeper. So First Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves 
being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. And of course, when you read of this submission, we're not thinking of submission to, to tyranny, to abuse, rather we are thinking again in that ideal of a submission to one who loves, so that the husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so when we read here the description of the beauty of the Shulamite, the beauty of the bride, we think of the beauty of the church. Now, of course, some of the the metaphors and the similes we have here seem to us very strange. We, after all, do not live in the ancient Near East where this sort of very largely animal-based, and it's domestic animal based, the doves doves were kept domestically, that's why they could be sacrificed so you have the doves you have the goats, goats again are kept domestically, shorn sheep which are kept domestically and of course the picture of the goats, goats have well those goats have glossy black hair and in that culture, in that part of the world, of course, the normal, normal hair colour for everybody was black. And so glossy black hair was, as it is today, very much valued as a, an element of beauty. So he's saying that she is perfect. And your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing. So the picture of these pearly white teeth every one of which bears twins and none is barren among them. That is to say that she has a regular smile. Her teeth are not uneven and they're all there. Missing teeth, of course, are much less of a thing today than they used to be. The, the diet in those days could be could have quite a lot of honey in it and this led to tooth decay and could lead to people having quite a number of missing teeth. But here, no, her teeth are perfect. And then he speaks of her lips. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. But this is not simply referring to her lips physically, that her mouth is physically attractive, but what she does with the mouth is attractive as well. What comes out of her mouth is beautiful. It's very important for Christians that Christians' speech should be edifying and beautiful speech. Our speech should not be something that uh, trips people up. Our speech should not be unpleasant or vicious. Our speech should rather be careful and measured. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, 29 says... Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And again, James mentions this uh, great problem that there is sometimes with speech. 
So I get a bit uh, confused when I turn to James in my Bible because it has a misprint in the headings. So James in my Bible starts with James chapter 13. <laughs> There's a bit obviously carried over. It always throws me. I should remember this. But he speaks in terms of language and speech. That our speech is to be what it ought to be. So James chapter 3. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. We've seen that recently in various places. A little fire. Some... Electricity cables fall down and short circuit, and a whole island in flames. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. And verse 10 Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and bread. <coughs> and so when he says, your mouth is lovely, he is considering what she says, that the church, the true church of God, as Christ sees her, the ideal is a church where people are speaking the truth, yes, but speaking the truth in love. Because, of course, a lie that is meant to comfort can be as damaging as an outright insult. The truth must be spoken in love. But every, everything that is said in the church should be to edification. It should be intended to build people up and not to break people down. He goes on to speak of temples behind her veil like a piece of pomegranate. The picture perhaps maybe of the outer part of the pomegranate, which can be quite smooth, or it may be about the, uh, the blush upon it that her complex to do with her complexion. Her neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory. That is to say there is something majestic about the way that she holds herself. So again, when we read of this language of the church submitting to Christ and wives submitting to husbands, it's not a, a slavish thing. It's something rather that is completely compatible with a nobility, with this noble bearing. Neck like the Tower of David built for an armory. You look at a, a a great castle. Look at, for example, the Tower of London. You see the, the various towers there built. And they're built to be majestic and impressive. And that's what she is like. He speaks of her physical beauty. But behind all that is a, an appreciation of a, a deeper spiritual beauty. 
And fundamentally we see here that when Christ looks upon the church, he sees the church not necessarily as she is right now. But he sees the ideal. He sees what the church will be. Because Christ is working on the church. Christ is conforming his church to his own image. So that just as the Shulamite reflects Solomon. Shulamite being effectively the the feminine of Solomon. So the church reflects Christ. So the church is like him. And he's looking forward to the day. He's looking forward to that wedding day that is to come. Verse 6. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of Myrrh. And to the hill of frankincense. It's notable of course that both of these are things that were given to our Lord. By those wise men that came from the east. Myrrh and frankincense, these aromatic perfumes. It has been said that myrrh has in it something of the feeling of death. Myrrh was used in the embalming. And frankincense was used in the incense used in worship. The incense that pictures prayer. Christ has his own work to do, his mountain of myrrh and his hill of frankincense. That is to say, his atonement and his intercession for his people. And it is his atonement and his intercession that ultimately are the reason why his people are conformed to his image. He has died and he now is risen again, he ever lives To make intercession. Therefore he is able to save. Unto the uttermost. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession. For them. Unto the uttermost. That is to say. To that point. Where God's people are. Completely fully. And perfectly saved. He saves fully and completely. Through the myrrh. And the frankincense. And then again he speaks. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. How can that possibly be said? How can it be that there is no spot in her? Well, again, because of his work. So again, we see in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 25 husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish so husbands ought to love their own wives their own bodies He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. There is then that great work that is the work of the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. The heavenly sanctuary where Christ is 
until that day, that coming day. And we have here his longing to be with her. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Lebanon, of course, was not in Israel. Lebanon is a a foreign place. And, of course, Lebanon in those days was noted for its forests. If you look today at the flag of the country of Lebanon, you will see that it has centrally a stylized cedar. The cedars of Lebanon. And Lebanon's forests were filled with many wild animals. The lions, dens, the mountains of the leopards. And he is thinking, the beloved is thinking of the peril that his bride may be in. The dangers that surround her where she is, figuratively in Lebanon. That she is there where the wild beasts are. The church is now, as it were, in Lebanon, in the among the wild beasts of the world, among the the persecutions, among the the trials and dangers, among the wild beasts even that pretend to be Christian teachers, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Come with me, come away with me. He longs the day when he shall come and take her to be with himself. He longs for that day that we have pictured for us in the Revelation, Revelation Chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. From verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. As the sound of many waters. And as the sound of mighty thundering. Saying hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted. To be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb is that which the Lord's people look forward to. And that the Lord himself is here pictured as looking forward to. That there is that day that he longs for. That where he is, there his people may be also. Come away with me. There is a a separation. But he thinks of her love. And what matchless condescension, to quote Mr. Gansby, do we have here in the language of our Lord. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister and spouse. How much better is wine than your love and the scent of your perfumes. He condescends to say that he loves to be with his people. That he desires his people. It was for love that he came and died and suffered. A love that he himself gives You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. And this language, my sister, my spouse, is this language of the one flesh. That the two are one. That Solomon is answered to by Shulamit. That the church answers to Christ. That they are one body. That they have this 
relationship where they reflect one another. The day is coming when Christ and his people shall be joined together. How much better than wine is your love? The thing about wine is however good the wine is, you can have too much of it. And if you do, then it spoils everything. Not so the true love of Christ and the church. That love, there can never be too much. There's never a point when it becomes sickening. How much better than wine. And the scent of your perfumes. Again, I've noted before, it's important to, to note that in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, it could be as hot as it is today, and more so. And people didn't bathe a great deal. And so people would always have, the more important you were, the more perfumes you would have, men and women. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes and all spices. She is better than everything. And so again, he goes into the this comparison that he says effectively, you're, everything wonderful is what you are. Your lips drop as the, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. There is nothing about her that is off-putting. It's a wonderful thing to think about when it comes to Christ and the church. Because even now this is the case. This is not him speaking on that day. This is him speaking before that day. Even now there is nothing about the true church that Christ finds off-putting. Because all the faults are faults that he is going to deal with and is dealing with. Because he has come to redeem his people. The love of God is a redemptive love. It's one of the great mistakes that people make. The great mistake the liberals make. The liberals think entirely of love in terms of what's being called a love of complacency. That is, it's a love that is, oh yes, I like this just the way it is. It's not the love of God. As Sinclair Ferguson has put it. It's not right really to say that God accepts us the way we are. He accepts us in spite of the way we are. But the, the love of God is a redemptive love. A love there that is about changing people. About making people better. Again it's that point that Christ sees the church as the church is going to be on that great day. When there is no more sin. Cleansed and purified. And washed by his most precious blood. That's how he sees the church. And another point that comes from this then is. How should we see the church? How should we think about the church? Now certainly we have to to say that. There are faults in churches. One thing we have to be very careful with is. Is making great sweeping statements about the church. Which church? One finds sometimes people who have been abused in church settings. Ministers who have been treated badly by churches. I know of one case of a minister who went away on holiday and found when he got back they'd fired him in his absence. Well that's always wrong. Because if you're going to discipline somebody they should be there 
You're going to dismiss the past. You do it when he's there. You don't do it when he's on holiday. And such treatment, of course, can lead people to be, or to become, quite jaundiced. But occasionally to make sweeping statements out of the church today. Which church? Which church? is now to say that the professing church today, but even then you have to make distinctions and differences. We are here an independent church. We are congregationalist in our view of the local church and independent in our view of the church. I have to say that to, there are two ways you can talk about the church. You can talk about the church generally, the universal church, all the all the elect, the church, or you can talk about the church here. But there's no such thing as the FIEC church. Now, of course, you can go into a, a town and say, well, let's take an example of the city of Norwich, where I spent my early childhood. You go there and say, where's the FIEC church? And they say, oh, sorry, chapel is over that way. In other words, the local congregation. That's where we see the church manifest in local congregations. It's a, it's a great shame that the word church is used for denominations in terms of the Anglican church because we all know how varied the Anglicans are. We can talk about the congregational church. Well, the only way we can talk about that is individual congregational meetings, churches. And we know how mixed they can be, but when we talk about the church, we either talk about the local church as it is, or we talk about the invisible church, the great body of all God's elect. We must be very careful that when we talk about the church, absolutely we, we must talk about flaws where they exist. But we do so not on the basis of uh, judgmentalism, but on the basis of, and these are things that how can we deal with them? How can we make things right? Because this is how Christ sees the church. The church is beautiful. Not because he's overlooking what is, but because he knows what will be. What the church will be. And the church is for him. This is another reason to be very, very careful in terms of particularly what is taught in the church. And in terms of the church's getting entangled in the things of this world because the church is for Christ. Verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. The bride is for the husband. Their intimacy has to be for one only. The husband... Again, Solomon himself, of course, fell massively short in this. But the, we have an ideal here. And that ideal is ultimately Christ and the church. Christ commits himself to his people wholly and completely. And Christ's people, the church, is for him and him alone. The church owns no other master. That's why the great confession of the church is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. You remember that the quote we looked at from First Peter, First Peter, chapter three, verse six: As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. That is to say that for Sarah, she wouldn't say to any other man, my Lord. Because that would have been wrong, that would have been betraying the marriage bond, betraying their marriage. And so it is the church must confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not Lord, whatever Caesar may be, whether Caesar may whether Caesar is Nero, Caesar in the first century, or whether Caesar is Adolf Hitler in the 20th century, or whether Caesar is woke ideology in the 21st century. The church belongs exclusively to Christ. And so the church gives its devotion. The church gives her submission ultimately to Christ. So that when Christ says, what Christ says, that we hear. And when any other power, be it dictator, be it societal pressures, says you cannot be the church, the response is Jesus is Lord. A garden enclosures my sister, my spouse, or as Dr. Watts paraphrases it, we are a garden walled around, chosen and made peculiar ground, a little spot enclosed by grace. Out of the world's wide wilderness. And he describes this garden as this beautiful garden of pleasant fruits and sweet smelling spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. That is to say, we're not to think about your garden pond here. Now, the thing about a garden pond, of course, is that it's an artificial piece of water, and if, if you're not careful, it gets stagnant and smelly. And it fills up, it silts up, because again, it's just sitting there. No, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. The streams from Lebanon were cool and refreshing in the heat of the day. And so he pictures pictures the bride as beautiful in every way, refreshing. She refreshes him to be with her, is all he desires. And then at last she speaks in the final verse. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden that spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Yes, she says, I am for you. And as you long to be with me, so I long to be with you. So I will freely give myself. He loved me and gave himself for me. And I, to him, myself will give. As Christ has given himself for the church and gives himself to the church, so the church gives herself to Christ, rejoicing in his love as she says your love is better than wine. And he replies, your love is better than wine. And so together, we close the chapter with this longing, this looking forward to this garden of love. This is a longing for what will be when the wedding day comes, when they shall be together forever. It's the same sort of idea that we have in our Lord's words in John chapter 14. 
John chapter 14 and verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That where I am, there you may be also. It's that great comfort that the Apostle speaks of to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words for the wedding day is coming to paraphrase an old chorus by and by Amen